I'm glad we're able to come together and share some reflective space this evening. I think it's a way both of connecting within ourselves to our own hearts and minds in a quieter space, and also helping to connect us perhaps more deeply just with the immense suffering that's happening happening now. Really the question tonight, I think, is how can we even begin to understand, you know, what it is that happened. It's so unbelievable in some ways, you know, and I think we all share in that sense of disbelief and puzzlement. So is there a way to bring some context of understanding to the events of this last day? What happened yesterday, the events yesterday, point so clearly and directly to the enormous power of hatred and delusion in the mind. I mean, where do actions come from? They come from the mind. And when the mind is filled with these forces of anger, of hatred, of delusion, of ignorance, this tremendous power, tremendous consequence. And the Buddha, the Buddha pointed this out. He used very strong words to describe these states In one of his first discourses, famous discourse called the Fire Sermon, he talked of how the mind is on fire. It's on fire with the force of greed, with the force of hatred, with the force of delusion. And we read this in our more ordinary lives, you know, in the course of more ordinary situation, and it's easy to interpret it metaphorically. Oh yeah, the mind's on fire and greed, hatred, delusion. <laughs> but I think he was actually speaking much more literally. You know, and the events and what, what has happened points to the huge power of these defilements of mind. Normally, we don't see them to be as dangerous as they are. You know, we go on living our lives and dealing with them in more ordinary ways, but then something enormous like this happens. And we begin to grasp the potential in the mind. and the power, the force of these defilements in the mind. And it's so clear and it's so undeniable. And it highlights, I think, for us the tremendous urgency of training our minds. Because we see the consequences of minds that are not trained. Really, minds out of control. 
Ajahn Sumedho, who many of you either know or know of, you know, American, who was a monk in the Thai forest tradition for many years and was the abbot in England of the, the Thai Amarati, the Thai temple, the monastery then. He, he had a very good phrase, I think, which points to an important distinction. And he said, the path of practice is not about following our hearts. It's about training our hearts. And that seems so essential to me, because there are a lot of things going on in our hearts. As becomes obvious, people have all kinds of feelings, all kinds of strong emotions, all kinds of beliefs. And if we're simply following whatever it is that's in our heart without discernment, without some wise reflection, If we're fortunate and they happen to be wholesome arisings, it has good consequences, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's really powerfully unwholesome forces at work with disastrous consequences. And so for each one of us, I think it's a question not simply of following our hearts or following our impulses, even though that that's kind of a go out on a limb and say, you know, a current New Age myth, that it has much more to do with training and wisdom. It's been very instructive for me, and I'm sure you share in this as well, to watch the range of feelings and thoughts and reactions in my own mind and in all of our minds, you know, in response to what happened. Because it's so shocking, you know, and so unbelievable. But it just calls up this huge range of response. And what it showed me, both in watching my own mind and then, you know, hearing endless reports on the radio and TV, the enormous potential for both harm and for good that exists in the mind. Both are in there, you know, and we've seen both. When things happen on this scale, you know, that are so out of our ordinary way of living and understanding, it really becomes a tremendous wake-up call. We need to wake up. If, if in any way we want to understand this and put it in some context of meaning, we really need to awaken out of our usual habituated patterns you know, of living and being. It's really a call to open our eyes and to see what it is that's happening, how things are happening. And the Buddha is such a uh, outstanding example 
of an unflinching willingness to see things as they are, to see things truly. And of course, this is the literal meaning of the word vipassana, the kind of meditation we do. It means seeing clearly. So really, the essence of our practice is just this. So yesterday's events become an even more urgent wake-up call to really see the truth, to see the Dharma, to see how things are happening. And it becomes so apparent that although we construct seemingly solid and permanent worlds around us, you know, worlds of relationship, or worlds of experience, or worlds of places, or worlds of things. We live typically in this way. It's, we're counting on things staying a certain way, or staying consistent, or staying stable. But we really all share in an enormous vulnerability that typically we don't open to very much. We don't see. Again, the Buddha saw this so directly and his teachings are so filled with this deep insight into the nature of things. Over and over again he said, things which have the nature to arise contain within themselves the nature to pass away, the nature to change. It's not a mistake. It's the very nature of conditioned, constructed things. We put things together and they have the nature to fall apart. And sometimes things change in very orderly, predictable ways, which is our more usual sense of the world. And sometimes things break apart or fall apart in violently disruptive ways. But I think what's an important understanding to reflect on is that this is inherent in the nature of condition constructing things. That if we're relying, if we base our lives on things staying a particular way, it's based on illusion. It's not based on what is actually true. And this is not a question of belief. You know, and everything we talk about tonight is really an invitation to explore within oneself and one's own experience. So it's really an invitation to look, you know, each one for ourselves. We see the truth of this just in the ordinary circumstances of our lives, if we look if we're wakeful enough and paying attention enough, not just the natural aging of the body and the illness of the body and the decay and the falling apart of the body. This is, it's not a mistake. It's just the nature. This is how things are. We see it in conditions of tremendous social or economic turmoil. 
you know, when really the world around us gets turned upside down, things change, conditions change. We see it in the most macro level. You know, in four and a half billion years, the sun's gonna collapse or explode or whatever it's gonna do. You know, and sort of this whole cosmic sense contains within it change and destruction. Because everything which is constructed falls apart one way or another. And so when we're shocked into facing the truth of this, it can actually help us connect with some very basic truth of existence. The Buddha went on, and again, with this tremendous ability to see the truth of things and not to pull back, he pointed out the suffering that is born from this instability. Now, the first noble truth of the Buddha's teachings, truth of suffering, very often in more ordinary circumstances, we take it as a philosophic statement. You know, we either agree with it or we don't agree, and we kind of debate it. But he, he wasn't saying it as a philosophic statement. It's not an abstract principle, the truth of suffering. He was really pointing to something so fundamental that when we rely for our happiness or well-being or state of peace, on conditions which are inherently unstable. It's like building a house on quicksand. The suffering inevitably follows. I see the first noble truth really as being reflective of a tremendous openness and honesty. You know, it's just that willingness to step back and look at our own lives and look in the world and to see the condition, to see how things are happening. But it's not easy to do. And certainly, you know, in watching the scenes on the, on the TV of what happened, you know, and I know we share all it. It's very hard to take it in. I mean, it's, we want to think it's like a movie, you know, because how many movies, have, you know, disaster movies have we seen with these things happening? And so we watch these images. It's extremely difficult to really, you know, that this happened. And that, I mean, if anything seemed solid, you know, just a couple of months ago, I was at a conference at the World Trade Center. So, so the image of those towers is so vivid in my mind. And it's just inconceivable. 
But somehow we do need to let it in because it's not only about that. It's about every aspect of our lives. We have to let that in. And that's what gives some meaning. We can begin to understand it in a much deeper way. The Dharma practice is about much more than living a little more happily, you know, or having a little more ease in one's life. As I mentioned out at the class at the study center the other day, Dharma practice is not really a hobby. Oh, yeah, I come to CIMC once a week or two times a week or once a month or whatever, and I sit somewhat regularly. It helps me in my life. It does. I mean, it's not to undervalue that, but it's really about much, much more than that. I mean, the Buddha was addressing the fundamental questions of life and death and suffering and freedom. And again, this becomes a wake-up call for us to stop, to, to kind of come out of our little concerns, which normally drive us in our lives, and to really connect with some much deeper and more profound questioning. You know, what is the nature of our lives, and where is their real security. The Buddha is urging us to awaken not because it's simply a nice thing to do. You know, he's, he's urging us to awaken out of tremendous compassion for the potential of suffering. So we see things, we practice seeing things as they are, and sometimes we're shocked into seeing things as they are, you know, in this horrific way. We see the the inherent instability of constructed circumstances, that it's in their very nature to break apart one way or another. We also see an aspect that is more subtle and has tremendous implication for how we respond in the world. And that is we begin to see very directly and Yesterday's events pointed out so dramatically that things are ungovernable. They're not subject to our will. They're not subject to our control. Everything happens because of certain conditions which bring them about, not because we wish them to be a certain way. You know, we could sit here and wish 
May my body never get old. May it never get sick. May it never die. It has nothing to do with our wishes. There are certain laws governing the unfolding circumstances. Things arise and change because of the conditions. May my mind always be happy. May it always be peaceful. May it never think in meditation. <laughs> it's not like that. There's, this, there's an ungovernability. Not only do we see it in ourselves, in our own body and mind, it's very obvious in the world. Let there not be war, let there not be violence, let there not be famine. Well, it takes more than just willing. Because all of these conditions, all of these circumstances arise because of conditions. Things are not in our control in the way that we pretend that they are. It's almost like our whole life is a pretense of control. And we live our lives as if you know, we really have the handle on things and how things are going to turn out until something like this or something you know, more personal to us in our lives happens. And then it becomes this wake-up call. There's a tremendous cost to this pretense. Because when we live our lives thinking that we can control how things are happening, then when they don't happen in the way they want, we want, when we really see things spinning out of control, and we've been living under that pretense, what happens? The mind is often filled with anger, with rage, with despair, with fear. And then we suffer the consequences of those mind states. If we want a desired end, if we want peace, if we want well-being, if we want happiness, whatever our desired end is, we need to create the conditions for that end to arise. And the less we're in the illusion of controlling it, it actually creates more space for wisely discerning what those conditions are. Because we're not living in illusion. We're actually awake. What will create the conditions that we desire? Yesterday's events are such a mirror for our minds. Now, listening to the radio today, and again, I know most of you or many of you have been following this, almost all the responses, the official responses, were holding it or in the context of war. Now, that was the, okay, this is a war. And only once, and this was, this was uh, yesterday, only once on, uh, that I heard, maybe, maybe some of you heard other examples, did I hear one person begin to talk about what were the conditions or the seeds out of which violent action comes? 
Now, what's the cause of violence? But that's not, so far anyway, really being talked about a lot, the, the kind of first, and it's, in a way it's understandable, but it's not necessarily wise. You know, the first, the first response is, okay, war, retaliation, without a greater exploration. And in these last few years, and of course this is historical, it goes back throughout history, but in the last few years when you read the endless cycles of violence in certain areas in the world, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or in Sri Lanka between the Tamils and the Sri Lankans, which has been going on, you know, for 20 years and tremendous violence, or in Northern Ireland, we see so clearly the Buddha's teaching, and it's a basic spiritual understanding, that hatred never ceases by hatred. Violence never ceases by violence. And we see it, you know, we just read or hear the reports, and it's just this endless cycle of one feeding the other. So we need to, we really need to look at this. But it's complex. You know, it's, this is not, it's not easy and not simple to understand what to do. What does one do in the face of violence? You know, what is the response? What is the appropriate response, the wise response? I just happened in these last few days to be listening to tapes, you know, audio tapes. Uh, it's a biography of Churchill. And so, of course, it's the whole history of, you know, pre-World War II and then the war. And, of course, he was prophetic in his understanding of where things were leading and seeing that in that situation, appeasement of violence was disaster. You know, it led to incredibly more suffering. So this is not something simple. I think we really need to just step back and have a very open, wide, reflective investigation, realizing hatred never ceases by hatred. And yet, what is the response? There's a story from the Jataka tales, you know, which are the tales of the Buddha in his lives previous to becoming Buddha. He's called the Bodhisattva. This, this is a striking story, and it takes a little space to hold it and understand it. But he was on this ship, you know, this journey, and somehow, I don't, I don't recall the details, all the details of the story, but somehow he came to know that there was this one guy on the ship who was about, in some way, to kill 500 people. Okay, so the Bodhisattva saw that this was going to happen. So he took it upon himself, he took the karma upon himself of killing this guy. Both to save the 500 people 
and also to save that potential murderer from amassing all of the unwholesome karma of killing. Well, what does this mean? You know, every time we see somebody about to do something harmful, <laughs> again, it, it just, we need to just open our minds and, and really investigate what wisdom means in situations of violence and what wise response is. Because it would be easy to retreat into indifference and not doing anything, sort of the appeasement pre-World War II, or it could fall into great vengeance, you know, the, the retribution of vengeance. And I think it really comes down, and it's illustrated in the story of the Bodhisattva, that it really comes down, the, the place of exploration for wise response rests in our deep understanding of our motivation. And the Bodhisattva in that situation was motivated by compassion, genuine compassion, not a, not a pretense of compassion. So this takes some skill, it takes some training, it takes a deep awareness to really look into our own hearts in the face of violent situations. Is it possible to respond strongly and appropriately with a wholesome motivation in the heart rather than with hatred? It's a tremendous challenge. Because it's the motivation, you know, in the Buddhist understanding of things, it's really the motivation behind the actions that will determine the long-term fruits. And so whether as individuals or as a nation, we need to be awake. We need to be conscious of the motivations behind whatever actions are taken. Of course, we can only start with ourselves. And again, I think this whole situation has become a wake-up call in our own lives to look at the motivations behind our actions. and to really see the whole range of skillful and unskillful forces that are at work within ourselves. Because everything that's playing out there in the world, that's being acted out, on some level, and hopefully a much diminished one, but on some level the same forces are at work within ourselves and our playing field may be smaller. And but this is where we need to start. 
it's very difficult to open to the shadow side in our own hearts, of our own minds. I think it's much more comfortable to live in the illusion that we're basically good people. Perhaps that's not the illusion. The illusion is that we're completely good people. <laughs> I think we are basically good people. <laughs> but anyone who's done any sustained awareness practice, and we can't help but notice, you know, the forces in our own minds of greed and hatred and anger and fear, and, and there's all these things that have gotten played out so intensely. There's a great turning point that happens, I think, in each of our spiritual journeys. And for me, it was really a dramatic change. When we would genuinely rather see the defilements in our minds than not see them. You know, because for so long we're going on in our lives in this comfortable self-delusion. And it takes some courage, and it takes tremendous honesty to be willing to look and really see what's there, and the whole range of what's there. But that's where the freedom is. Because it's only if we open to the range of motivation that we can make some wise discernment. If we're not seeing it, we are just acting out habituated responses. And we do this individually, and we do it as a culture, we do it as a nation. And in situations like this, it's not hard to imagine the potentially disastrous consequences of acting out unwholesome motivation. And again, it doesn't mean not acting, but where is it coming from? So we need to do that in ourselves, in our own lives. Some of the defilements really are on the attachment side, you know, in the harmful actions which come out of attachment, of greed. Just attachment to pleasure. Just recently I remembered an incident that happened to me years ago. I was, this was in 1967, so it was a long time ago, and I had kind of put it out of my mind. I had just finished the Peace Corps. I had been in the Peace Corps in Thailand. And I was on my way home and coming through Nepal. And I went, there's a day trek from Kathmandu up to this place called Nagarkot, which has a view of Everest. And now it's quite a developed tourist place. But at that time, in 67, there was, all, it, there was almost nothing. There was, there was like this very primitive, it was more than a lean-to, but it was just like a hut, you know. And there was, um, you know, on top of, on top of 
what we would call a mountain. There's a big hill. <laughs> yeah, but it had, you know, it had this view of the, the range where Everest was. And we went in, and there were just, uh, you know, some number of us staying over on cots. And each cot kind of had two blankets. We all go to sleep, and it was cold. You know, there was a, it was a very primitive, and there was no heat, and it was, it was very cold. And I was lying there, kind of thinking it was going to be a very long night. And then toward the middle of the night, somebody came in and... turns out there was only one blanket on, on his cot, you know, and so the, the caretaker sort of just called out into the darkness, uh, you know, does anybody have an extra blanket? You know? And there were actually three blankets on my cot. And I just lay there. And <laughs> I was really cold. <laughs> and I didn't say anything. And it's like 35 years later, I still remember the rationalization in my mind. You know, well, I didn't ask for it. You know, it was just there. But looking back, I mean, what was that about? <laughs> but, you know, it was just greed for comfort. Manifesting in really very unkind and... I mean, it wasn't disastrous results, but it was not, not a great thing to do. So sometimes just attachment to our own comfort or pleasure blinds us, you know, to our own motivation. You know, at the time, I, it's like I didn't see this, how I'm describing it now is all in retrospect. There I was just kind of <laughs> trying to be comfortable. maybe even more dangerous than kind of attachment for pleasure or attachment for comfort in terms of harmful consequences. And this is really harmful, which we play out on so many different levels, is attachment to views, attachment to opinions. You know, we have very strong views about things. It's attachment to the beliefs my way of thinking about things is right, and everything else is wrong. What was fueling, you know, the minds of, of the hijackers? An incredibly strong attachment to belief, attachment to view. You know, feel, I'm sure they felt they were doing the right thing. They constructed a whole worldview, you know, which supported that and which led to those results and that immense amount of suffering. Well, we get caught also, again, hopefully on a much lesser context, but the same principle, and causes enough conflict in our own immediate worlds, enough harm, where we get so attached to our way of viewing things You know, I've been working on this uh, new book called One Dharma, and it was really motivated by my coming into contact 
with different Buddhist teachings and great Buddhist teachers who said opposing things. Each side, each one, certain that they were speaking what was true, and I'm sure it was verified for them in their own experience. It wasn't just intellectual. These were great masters, you know, and they had different viewpoints about things which were of most importance to me, what my life revolves around. So what do you do? You know, when you come to a, a fork in the road and the s both signposts seem to be pointing in the right, in the right direction. And it was that dilemma which really motivated me to look more deeply into this question of views. And it resolved for me in really a beautiful way in terms of Dharma practice and understanding different teachings. But it has application for our views and opinions about the world you know, and how we hold the world that if we take whether they're teachings or our views to be expressions of truth, expressions of absolute truth, conflict is absolutely inevitable because people have different views. And if we're holding on to our particular view, this is the truth and all else is false, what happened yesterday is the result. It's that it's that fanaticism of holding to views. And what I really discovered for myself, and each one of us has to do this, is to really see that whether we're talking about Buddhist teachings or anything else, need to hold our beliefs and opinions and views not as statements of truth, but as skillful means. Skillful means for being happier, for being freer. Then we can use many perspectives. Oh, this is a skillful means for happiness. This is a skillful, even if they're saying opposite things, they may equally be ways of freeing ourselves from suffering a very different way of holding a view. We really can learn from many sides. So the defilements that cause harm arise on the side of attachment, whether it's attachment to pleasure, attachment to view. They also arise on the side of aversion. You know, those mind states of fear, of anger, of hatred, of violence. The Dalai Lama speaks so often about the danger of anger. And it's not about anger arising because it arises in all of our lives in different situations. It's whether we get lost in it, whether we feed it, whether we fuel it, whether we act on it, or we learn how to hold it and let it go. And the Buddha said something so so right on in terms of the seductive power of anger and we are all seduced by it and you know, how much of the violence in the world 
is fueled by tremendous anger. We see it in so many different places. The Buddha talked of it as anger with its poisoned source, fevered climax, murderously sweet. And that's all of those aspects are in the energy of anger. You know, it's a poison source. It's a fevered climax, and there is a, it's almost a sexual, you know, the, the climax of expressing it. And that feeling of self-satisfaction, the murderously sweet quality. So this is a powerful force in the world. And it's a powerful force in our own minds. Again, we need to really understand, we need to, to look at it and learn how to work with it. Sometimes we know the anger is there, but we just feel caught. You know, we just feel caught in it. We need to then really investigate further and look, okay, what's underneath? What's fueling it? What's feeding it? And it could be tremendous feeling of hurt. It could be tremendous fear. You know, and given the instability, the insecurity of conditioned things, when we're in a situation of great vulnerability, as is happening now in our whole culture, our whole society, you know, I think people genuinely are in touch with the tremendous uncertainty of what is going to happen. This could go any place. You know, we have no idea where this is leading. Well, very difficult to hold that uncertainty, to hold that unknowing with acceptance, with some spaciousness. Because the very uncertainty, the very vulnerability often produces tremendous fear. If we don't know how to be with the fear, it either leads to tremendous withdrawal you know, and contraction or it rebounds into aggression, it rebounds into anger. And that, of course, is the very delicate situation we find ourselves in right now. This is, we're at that point. You know, there is uncertainty, there is unknowing, there is vulnerability. There is a lot of fear coming out of that. Which direction do we go? You know, can we hold it? Can we be with it? Do we pull back or do we rebound you know, into aggressive action? It's hard because generally people don't like to feel fear. It's too uncomfortable. So it takes a practice. I was teaching a retreat for law students and lawyers and law professors. Lawyers, <laughs> the legal, the legal world, and there was this one young law student who said something so interesting to me. He said, "You know, in the adversarial situation, 
I need to be angry. Because if I wasn't angry, then I would feel afraid. And it was just so startling to me, you know, that we get caught in anger and the tremendous harm of anger and the tremendous danger of anger, we get caught in that out of our fear of feeling fear. And so much of our practice, as you know, those, those of you who are practiced, okay, can I open to it? Can I be with it? Can I feel it? It's okay. It's okay to feel this. You know, it's really being in ourselves the way we might be with a frightened child. Don't push it away, don't get angry at him or her. We just hold the space. Well, can we do that in ourselves? Can we hold the space of the fear? And then, at a certain point, it washes through. It's not permanent. And it really enables us to respond then to the uncertainty, to the unknowing, to the vulnerability with much greater wisdom. So given the instability, given the insecurity, that is inherent. You know, and and yesterday's events just painted in these huge letters. Things are not secure, our bodies are not secure, our lives are not secure. It's the nature of constructed, conditioned existence. And this is what the Buddha was pointing out. Well, the question, the, the deep question for us is where then is a true refuge? You know, does it just leave us in a place of despair? Or is there a place of safety? Is there a place of refuge? And this possibility of safety, the potential for safety, is expressed in many different ways. You know, and it is there, and that's really the basis of every uh, skillful uh, journey of awakening. Every time we take the three refuges, you know, take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha, it's, it's interesting that that's the phrase that's used. I take refuge. The Buddha is saying, yes, this is a place of safety. What does it mean? When I take refuge in the Buddha, what are we taking refuge in? You know, on one level, it's to that great being all those centuries ago. But really, it's taking refuge in the understanding that freedom is possible. I mean, this is a possibility. This person and many beings since have actually done this. So it's not just for somebody else. We can find that place of unshakable peace within ourselves. I take refuge in the Dharma. It's taking refuge in in teachings that lead to it and to the very nature of the awakened mind, the wakeful mind. Every time we come out from being lost in some negative emotion, you know, or some 
long fantasy of mind, when we're simply caught up you know, in that energy, and then at a certain point we wake up. We come back into awareness. That's a taste. That is a taste of the freedom that's possible. We can, we can wake up from the drama and the stories of our lives. But it's practice, it's a training. Notice the peace of mind when the mind, even if it's for a short time, is actually free of defilement. When it's not grasping or wanting or filled with anger, you know, or hatred or greed. Thich Nhat Hanh, in, you know, the title of one of his books, and it's so beautiful, peace in every step, peace in every breath. We come back to the peace that's possible in each moment if we're not relying on conditions staying a certain way. It's in the mind that has let go of that grasping, of that attachment. Alan Watts called it the wisdom of insecurity. Now, when we see the truth of that and let go, this is refuge in the Dharma. That's, that's our place of safety. We take refuge in the Sangha and I think this is hard to appreciate the enormous power and value of association with wise people, with wise beings. That's, that's really what taking refuge in the Sangha means, and the Buddha talked so often of it. Because the people we associate with influence our minds, influence our actions. We need to cultivate association with wise friends, with wise beings. One wise person, even in horrific situations, can be the cause of tremendous peace. There's one story which uh, it just inspires me so much as a possibility. This goes back to the time of Indian independence from Britain. You know, and for those of you who are familiar with the history, there's tremendous violence as India and Pakistan were partitioned. And many tens of thousands of people were slaughtered and bloodshed and violence. And it, was, it was horrible and it was all over, the, uh, especially the northern, the northern tier of India. And just completely chaotic. You know, and so the government sent 10,000 troops to the Punjab to try to quell the violence. Gandhi by himself went to Calcutta, West Bengal. And he undertook publicly, he said he would fast until death unless people put down their guns. And Gandhi had so much personal power and so much personal purity that what 10,000 troops couldn't do in the Punjab, this one person 
could do in West Bengal. And people were so, I don't know, inspired or moved or touched or something. There was something about that act which was so powerful and had this enormous impact on that whole region. You know, where you think of beings like Martin Luther King or, you know, in Birmingham or Chicago or Memphis, surrounded by violence and holding that place of love, holding that place of compassion. So each one of us really has the potential to hold that space. And we need to, you know, especially in circumstances like this, in times like this. Each one of us has to be that island of peace, of openness, of compassion. And all of this, whether we think of it as the three refuges, all of these different aspects, it all comes down to what the Buddha called in the teaching of bodhicitta, you know, that aspiration that motivation, that our practice, that our lives, that our actions be for the benefit of all beings. I mean, just think, if, this is, we can think it anyway, <laughs> if all beings in the world held that motivation, well, we can't control all beings, but we can work within ourselves. You know, and this is tremendously difficult. But we plant the seed. We just start very small, very simple. We plant that seed of aspiration. And then we watch our motivations. We really practice being aware and choose, you know, with wisdom, what to act on, what to let go of. So I'd just like to close with actually there are two different things here. They're a little different, but I'd like to read just the few lines of the Metta Sutta, the Sutta on Loving Kindness, because really it's the Buddha's instruction to us. Okay, how can we be in the world? How can we plant that seed of bodhicitta, you know, in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives? It's very straightforward, you know, it's so simple, but it's training our hearts. It takes a training. So this is from the Sutra. May all living beings be happy and at their ease. We can practice this. May they be joyous and live in safety. May all beings, whether weak or strong, omitting none, be happy and at their ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or ill will wish harm to another. 
even as a mother watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living beings. Radiating friendliness over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate a boundless goodwill toward the entire world, free from ill will and enmity. This is our charge, and particularly in times like this. Can we hold that energy? Can we hold that space? Can we radiate those feelings? Excluding none. Thank you. If you'd like to stand and stretch for a moment, and then there could be time for some comments or questions or reflections. And if you need to leave now, it's fine. Those of you who are sitting downstairs, who can hear but not see, there is now some space upstairs if you would like to come up. I'll see. Do you have any questions or comments? Yeah, I'm struck when I'm trying in my own mind to make sense of this that all the information that I'm getting about the characters involved, what really happened, is suspect. You know, it's all second hand. It's, um, I don't know, it, Osama bin Laden bought some dirt. You know, I mean, I don't know what his motivations are. And, you know, I was struck by this during the elections, too. I mean, how do you make a choice based on character when all you're getting is the public persona, all you're getting is the surface of this person? It's, it's really hard to, to, to be discerning in the face of contradictory right. information and overload of information. And I just, you know, find myself not knowing what to do. Right. Did you hear, the, did you hear that? 
I think that the key element in that is the truthfulness of realizing that we don't know and to be be comfortable or accepting of the not knowing until we do know. Because otherwise, as you say, it's just opinion. And it's not necessarily based in reality. So in terms of the externals, at this point, we don't know. You know, and I think the great challenge is becoming okay with that. What we do know is what's going on in our own minds. And that's where the discernment needs to start anyway. You know, and just to watch whatever it is that comes up. You know, whether it's some reaction to the not knowing or instinctive reactions to what it is that you do here. You know, we can really be observing of the range of our own responses. No, I think that that's part of what makes this also difficult, is that we don't know. I do, and it's an important question because I think you're quite right in saying that underlying kind of so many of the other fears is precisely that very fundamental fear of death or fear of annihilation. And it's, for many people, deeply, deeply conditioned, even hidden. What makes it from a Buddhist perspective, a little tricky about a public proclamation is that the understanding is not that there's some kind of eternal happy hunting grounds, but rather How to say this succinctly. (laughs) (laughs) The very notion of a self that was born and will die is an illusion. You know, it's sort of like 
watching the movie and all these, you know, everything's happening in the movie and people are born and falling in love and dying and, you know, every aspect of their lives and, but on another level, nothing is happening. Nothing is going on. But try to, I mean, and this is the great discovery, you know, of the teachings and of practice. Mostly we are living our lives as if we were the characters in the movie. And it feels like, it just feels so real in that way. And the illumination or the realization, and it's progressive. You know, we get glimpses of it and then begins to, to fill out. We begin to see that there is no one there as, as a... There's no essential self there that's born or dies. You know, a story that I tell often, because it's just, it's just so remarkable to me. It's a possibility of understanding. When, when the 16th Karmapa, you know, the, he's the head of one of the great Tibetan lineages, who has since been reborn as the 17th, uh, but when he was dying, he died in uh, Mount Zion, or Zion, Illinois, near Chicago body riddled with cancer and, you know, total disaster from a physical point of view. And all his students were really concerned and grieving and, and at one point he turned to them and said, don't worry, nothing happens. <laughs> and it's just, it's such a striking statement that it kind of shocks the mind into something, you know, just oh, is there another way of understanding all of this that goes way beyond our conventional view? You know, and so that's really the Buddhist response. But that's hard to say on the street corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, no, it, that's, that's very true. And I, I don't in any way mean to diminish the reality of the grief and the sorrow because all of us are caught in the illusion you know, and we are living to a large extent in that world and that's why the wisdom and the potential for wisdom and the potential for, for genuine freedom which is not it's not make-believe but that wisdom is always balanced and suffused with compassion for the suffering of Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.